As we turn to Joel, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. We've been in the middle of a section on Joel chapter 2, and we're actually covering verses 12 to 14. And we've been talking about, in a simple outline, three marks of true repentance. And we're dealing with the topic of repentance because as we've covered and as I've reviewed week after week, God, in essence, has backed his people into a corner. We don't know all of the particular details historically of what's going on, but what we do know is the people had turned away from God, and God was getting their attention. God was not going to allow them just to meander and ignore him with impunity. God was going to work in the lives of his people. And he already worked by bringing the locust plague that wiped out everything economically. It destroyed the ability to worship God. But he was warning them that another aspect of judgment was coming. There's the ultimate day of the Lord that's drawing near where God will settle all accounts. But even before that day gets there, and nobody can withstand that day, he was warning them that, look, if you don't change, I'm going to send an army against you that will make the locust look like nothing. Ultimately, the way things are moving, the people are trapped in doom and gloom, but now, in the midst of the book, there's a ray of hope. Because Joel, it's actually God, is giving the people the way to avoid his discipline, his judgment. And it's to repent. It's to return to the Lord. And as I've gone through this, I'm going to briefly summarize the first two points, because today we're going to really get into and finish the last point. But the first Mark of true repentance was that true repentance is timely. Verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your hearts. He's just telling them, Repent. He's telling them, Do it now. He's giving them an invitation. Judgment's coming, but He's giving them a chance. Turn to me. Repentance isn't for tomorrow. Repentance is for now, because that's the only guarantee we have is right now. Secondly, true repentance involves a sincere change of heart. Return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Deuteronomy 6.4 has always set forth God's standard. Jesus later made it clear this is the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. God wanted the heart. So when he said, return to me, repent, though fasting and weeping and mourning are just manifestations, they're evidences of an inward change. Brokenness, hopelessness, guilt. But he made it clear that it's not just the externals. And rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, it's about the heart change, not just the external appearances. You can go through all the external acts and it not actually be repentance. Feeling bad isn't the goal because there's a feeling bad that doesn't help. 
I read it in more detail last week, but 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That's what Joel wants. What continues, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's just the feeling bad. That's what Judas had after he betrayed Jesus and killed himself. What I've enjoyed as I've studied this book more is to see that the message of Joel is really the message of the gospel. What's the message of Joel? God's judgment is coming upon you because of your sins to repent and turn to God. That really is the gospel. The only difference is we know Jesus Christ because we're on this side of the cross. Joel was pointing to that, but that was part of the mystery to be revealed later that the Old Testament prophets didn't fully understand what was there. It's the message of today. That's the hope of today. Judgment's coming. Repent. So that is my brief review that gets me to our final point for today. The third mark of true repentance. True repentance is timely. True repentance involves a sincere change of heart. Number three. True repentance rests on the character of God. True repentance rests on the character of God. Now I'm going to start reading again in verse 13. In the middle of the verse, it says this, Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This really summarizes the heart of Joel's book, of his prophecy. There's great truth and comfort here of deep theological significance, but there's also additionally additional theological significance that matters. So we're going to pull this apart, talk about the individual parts, and I'm going to try and put it together. But I'm convinced the truths that we're talking about here have as much relevance to us today in what our calling is as when they were originally written thousands of years ago. In fact, the truths in this verse, as I think about it, ultimately they undergird the reason why I'm going to Africa this week. It's all about God and His character. As we continue in verse 13, Now return to the Lord your God. This is what He's already been saying. This is what He's already been encouraging. And in fact... This is when he begins to provide even more explanation. He's already been explaining, but we're seeing what undergirds this call to repentance. Yes, it's to avoid a severe and great judgment. It's to not be punished. But the real reason why they're being called to repent has to do with God himself. It's his character. Now return to the Lord your God for He. In other words, he's saying this is why. This is why we do this. For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. If we can step back, and it's hard to do because the nature of Sunday school is we have to chop this up. 
But if you remember, as we were building the picture, starting in chapter 2, from verse 1 all the way through verse 11, you had this picture of building judgment, this army that was coming, that was going to be unstoppable, that was going to surround Israel, that was going to wipe them out. An army sent to destroy that couldn't be stopped. And what was so alarming was that it was clear God was leading the army. God was sending it. It was God's army. Were they going to be a pagan king? Yes. A pagan people? Yes. People that in their own right would be judged for their sin. But it was God who was moving them forward. So on the one hand, you have this picture of God as a serious and righteous and holy angry judge who will not tolerate sin... He's already sent locusts that wiped out everything. But this God is not a sadistic ogre. He's not some vicious despot who's just manipulating and toying with puzzle pieces. His holiness and justice and wrath are very real. The message is you'll feel them if you don't repent. But that's not the sum total of who God is. So we have an opportunity as we go through this to just remind ourselves because that's what Joel's doing is reminding us of the character of God. He starts with, for he is gracious. He is a God of grace. Unmerited kindness and favor. Countless Places in Scripture talk about this. For example, 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. God's grace is not because of who we are, it's because of who He is. Our salvation is would not be possible apart from God's grace shown to us. He is gracious. We're evidence of that because we're saved. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 7, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. We tell people who are sinners, who are rebels against God, that judgment is coming, but we also tell them, but there's a God who's gracious, who offers you an invitation. That's what Joel's saying as well. He was gracious then. He's gracious now. For he is gracious and compassionate. If you're like me, if you think much about these things, these are the kind of things that can really cause your brain to break down. Because God's God and we're not. And there's a sense, when you look at the scripture, God is angry at sin. He really is. He hates sin. He will judge sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I can't read a verse like that and then look at our culture and not think, uh-oh. Because we're the definition of ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. 
You look ahead to the end of time in Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And you keep reading and it's horrific. So there's a sense in which it's very easy for me from reading scripture to tell someone who's in the depths of their sin, look out, judgment's coming. But by the same token, and this is the part that's incomprehensible, the same God that hates sin and that wants to pour out his wrath is truly compassionate on those same sinners that deserve the wrath. God doesn't draw some perverse pleasure out of punishing the wicked. God's full of compassion, particularly for his people. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. It's hard to fathom. God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I can't fully make perfect sense in my mind of these tensions that God elected some, but God doesn't want any to be perishing. But what I can look at the scripture and see is that God has a compassion on those created in his image that they don't deserve. We don't deserve. I have to catch myself at times because when I get really frustrated with the world around me, I can find myself, particularly when someone is egregiously mocking God or mocking the faith or mocking us, in my flesh at times I could think, boy, I wish... Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Okay, God, give me that for a few minutes. But here's the problem. I don't have the attitude towards those sinners that God does. He's still gracious and compassionate towards them. In fact, the next part is why God doesn't give us the ability to call down fire from heaven because we're not like God. For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He has holy and righteous anger. It's real. But again, God is not quick-tempered. If he was, the earth would have already been destroyed. He wants people to repent. He gives them an opportunity to repent. Next, God is abounding in loving kindness. He desires to show his kindness, his favor... Not because people deserve it, but because it's an overflow of who he is and he wants to share that with others. I'll never cease to be amazed that God showers his loving kindness on sinners like us. Forget us, me. Not really forget us, I'm just saying the principle of teaching that's applied to myself first. Because I look in the mirror and I know who I am. And yet I also see the blessings daily that God's flowing my way. And I can't comprehend it. Psalm 6, 4 says, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. 
Psalm 13, 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Why do we call sinners to repent? Because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to pour out His wrath. He overflows with loving kindness. As His loving kindness has been poured out on you, He still wants to pour it out on others, and we have the privilege of being a part of that. That's why I'm looking forward to Tuesday. I look forward to helping the pastors in West Africa be able to be better equipped to tell the people of West Africa about the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. All of Africa is not the same, but we're going to be in the midst of an area heavily influenced by voodoo. In fact, it's the birthplace of what passes for voodoo. Mike Schott always says, Nigeria is full of evil men. Benin is full of evil spirits. But in that environment, there are faithful men that God has saved that are trying to tell people who God is. And I want to be able to help. I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to be able to help. But we have the same opportunity, every one of us here. I don't think Satan and his demonic forces are any more active where I'm going than they are here. I think they manifest themselves more publicly there. Here, everybody's nice and polite and looks different. It's a caution to me, and it's a caution to all of us as we look at the world around us, particularly... Because we live here, America is at the forefront of our minds. And we see America stumbling downhill so fast that we're, our breath's taken away because we can't believe what's happened to our country. And it's going to get worse, it's not going to get better. Let me encourage you in the midst of that, be careful about having a hard attitude that prays that people get what they deserve. Pray that they'll receive what we received. The overflowing of God's grace and His mercy. The undeserved gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Pray that our nation, individual by individual, will repent and turn to the Lord. We understand that's the only hope for our country. It's not a new government. It's not a better outcome of the elections. It's for individuals to come face to face with a holy and righteous judge and yet repent and turn to Jesus Christ to receive the overflow of God's grace and compassion and mercy. And that kind of brings us to the last aspect of God's character that's on display in Joel. Because remember where we find ourselves. The people who are receiving this letter are on the verge of judgment. They've already been wiped out by the locust. But they're being warned, if you don't change, something worse is coming. And so in the midst of this, being told, return to the Lord, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, 
and relenting of evil. Now this requires a little explanation because God doesn't do evil in any way and that's not what the writer is saying. Rather, it's poetic language that it's explaining God's actions from a human perspective. I think the ESV captures well what is going on here. It says, and he relents over disaster. And here's what's being pictured is that God, when he brings judgment, it is destructive. It's devastating. That's what the locusts were. And all this is saying is one aspect of God's character is even though people deserve that, He often relents. In other words, God would have every right to have already wiped out and judged the people for their disobedience and their hard hearts. But God, because of His character, repeatedly shows restraint. All of this really for any of the hearers of this letter who understood the Old Testament history, and at the time they received the letter, they wouldn't have had a word like Old Testament. They just had the law. But in Exodus chapter 34, have a situation where God could have wiped out the people. The people were so quickly turned against Him, they were sinning. But God said this to Moses, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. My my point being that Joel wasn't treading new ground. He wasn't saying something about God that wasn't already clear to them, but obviously it was something they had forgotten. It wasn't on their horizon. When they stopped loving God, they also stopped thinking about and reflecting on the character of God. Such that you can imagine if you didn't remember that God was merciful and you knew that God was going to judge, what would you do? You'd just run and hide. And Joel's saying, no, 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 no. Yes, God is going to do all those things, but don't run and hide. Return to Him. He loves you. He cares for you. So in that regard, verse 13 has made it clear Why are people being called to repent? Because God himself and his character is the basis for it. Come to me. What's interesting in verse 14 is perhaps it's a bit jarring the way that Joel takes up things and what he says. Verse 14. He's already said, return to the Lord because of all these things, because of all these characteristics. He is this way. Now return to the Lord your God. And then he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. In other words, Joel doesn't say, well, if you do this, God is obligated to do that. He tells them, return, repent. This is God's character. And then he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. 
This doesn't mean Joel didn't have faith. It wasn't despair. It wasn't fatalism. As one commentator said, one of my professors in seminary, who knows is not an expression of doubt or unbelief concerning Yahweh's character. What it is, is a recognition that even in God's character and even with this command and this word from the Lord to return and repent, God is sovereign, we're not. From a human perspective, we don't dictate God's actions. We can't make God jump. We ask in faith, knowing who He is, how He's revealed Himself to us, but then we trust the outcome, whatever it is, to Him. So Joel is saying, very clearly, repent. Turn to God. And he's saying, if you do, you may avoid the judgment that's coming. But you're entrusting yourself to God's perfect will regardless. You're not manipulating God as though you can pull the right lever to make God move a certain way. Now again, this requires us to be careful with our thinking and not to become fatalistic. But the reality is there is nothing we do that makes God anything less than God, who still executes His perfect will in whatever form. As I was thinking about the reality of what I believe the Scripture is teaching here, several different Scriptures jumped to my mind in terms of God's sovereignty, and there are countless other Scriptures. But it's a reminder, even as we call people to repent and we tell people to repent, we don't control the outcome for people when they do. Everything we do in every aspect of life is dependent on the Lord's will, not our own. James chapter 4, there's a provision beginning at verse 13 that tells human beings, be careful about your belief that you control things. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Verse 14, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Verse 16, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In other words, we never should get to the point where we think our actions dictate God's response. Certainly God gives us promises, but we trust in the promises, we don't ever turn them into license for us to move God. I thought many times about the next verse, and it's familiar to us, and in the course of the New Testament, few people were as significant as Paul. His ministry was remarkable. He wrote so much of the New Testament. He had a personal encounter of Jesus that we can't comprehend. He went from being the worst of sinners, he was killing Christians, to being elevated 
to be God's primary spokesperson to the Gentiles. Someone, if you look at, despite all of his hardships, you say he was blessed. And yet we read this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 9. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Stop for a second. I would have thought in my humanness that if anybody had the ear of God, it'd be Paul. What God allowed him to do, God directly spoke to him, gave him new revelation. And yet God's answer to that pleading, Lord, release me from torment, was in essence, no. Verse 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. As far as we know, God did not take away Paul's torment. He simply made clear that, Paul, my perfect will is enough for you. You have all you need. So again, keep coming back, and I always try and go back and forth to keep the big picture so I don't lose sight of it. God's people are being told, repent. And they're being promised that if they return to God, He is gracious and compassionate and all of those things. What they're not being promised is that all the consequences of their sin will be undone. It might be, but it might not be. I preached a message on this years ago, but I remember, I still remember, it all came about because I was doing daily Bible reading and I came across this verse. In 2 Kings chapter 23, there's an account of Josiah, a young king. And when Josiah became aware of the requirements of the law, he undertook a process of repentance that as far as I know, I've never seen anything so comprehensive. Top to bottom, he reordered society. I mean, you want to talk about repentance. He made the people repent. He tore down all the false worship. It was remarkable what he did. So much so that in 2 Kings 23, 25, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. In other words, this was the picture of repentance. What Joel is saying to do, Josiah did. God's assessment, nobody's ever done it like that. He turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, the entire law. Nobody before, nobody after. This is the picture of repentance. And if you've read in that book, which I had been doing, it really was remarkable. And then you get to verse 26 and it almost takes your breath away. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of His great wrath with which His anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked Him. 
Was Josiah's repentance real? Yes. Were the people blessed by it? Yes. But it didn't undo all the evil. And this was one time when you say, who knows if the Lord will relent? Scripture makes it clear. In that case, the Lord didn't. So here's the ultimate point. We have to step back. Again, it's back and forth, but trying to keep perspective and focus. We don't have any message for people other than repent and trust God. There is no other hope. And if they do, we can promise without a doubt that they have a place for all eternity with the Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can give that promise. But even in repentance, we can't promise people anything other than that the outcome of that repentance will result in God's perfect will. We are called and we call others to trust God and His character. It may be that the consequences of sin are such that God doesn't turn away, but it still doesn't obviate that the individual sinner is now the recipient of grace and mercy and kindness. What it tells us is we have to trust the sovereign purposes and plan of God and never think that we dictate to God the outcome. We can claim the promises of God. We can rest in His promises. But we can never turn His promises into license to think that we call the shots. God does. Now verse 14, let me finish it. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And really all that the writer is doing here in the midst of this encouragement, and he's telling them there's hope. And he says, you know what? If you repent and you return to the Lord, not only might God not judge you, but God may change your fortunes. If you remember in chapter 1, one of the tragedies caused by the locusts was that the people could no longer do the daily sacrifices to worship the Lord. Joel 1.9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The point was there was no crops to make the grain offering. There was no grapes to make the drink offering that went on the grain offering. People lost the ability to worship the Lord in the way that he prescribed it's supposed to happen daily. It can't happen at all. And what he's saying here is trust in God's character and who knows? God may restore all of that. God may give you the opportunity again to worship Him. At the end of the day, what I would want us to take away from this because I believe it's what the Scripture is teaching is that repentance is not based on us and what we need and what we do. Repentance is based on the character of God. We turn to a merciful judge. We repent because of who He is. He's the one who can heal and forgive as an overflow of His gracious and loving character. Let me bring this to a quick close because I realize I'm at noon. But I'm about to go to Africa so I've got to finish now or else we don't finish. There's a perfect Old Testament picture of the outcome of what Joel's preaching. It's not people to whom Joel preached, but it's sort of the case study of what this would look like if the people respond. 
And it has to do with the pagan people, the people of Nineveh, in the book of Jonah. And if you recall, Jonah was told to go and preach that God was going to wipe them out because of their sin. And I have to speed up and simplify, but in verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3, it says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. That's what Joel is pushing for. That's what Joel's counting on. That's the hope that Joel lays out. Not that God's obligated to always respond the same way, but knowing that a loving and kind and gracious for God does relent. And he may relent. The message really hasn't changed. The difference is we have the privilege of knowing so much more of the details. We know that Christ made our repentance possible because the wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on Jesus in our place. God is a loving and merciful and forgiving God, abounding in loving kindness. He hates sin and He'll judge sinners, but He continues to show His mercy. And He wants that men have the opportunity to repent both here in America and around the world. That's the message I carry with me to the pastors in Africa to encourage them to proclaim. That's what they proclaim. That's what you and I proclaim here. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I know my limitations as a communicator, Lord, and there is a depth to you and your character and to your word that I can't fathom and I can't touch but Lord your spirit indwells each one of us he is our helper he is our comforter and I pray Lord that to the extent my words were accurately revealing your truth as found in the book of Joel that you'll use your spirit to help us understand the truth for us to help us apply it where we need it in our lives Lord, each one of us here understands when we look in the mirror that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate. The fact that you didn't strike us dead in the midst of our sin shows that you're slow to anger. And Lord, the fact that we came to faith in Jesus Christ is evidence that you are abounding in loving kindness and that you've showered it upon us. Lord, help us not take these things for granted. Help us to be encouraged by them. Help us to be strengthened by them. Help us to rejoice in these truths, Lord, of what you've done for us. 
And help us, Lord, be quick to share this with the lost and dying around us, not out of a sense of obligation or duty or grudgingly because we have to, but Lord, help our joy in the Lord to be contagious, so contagious that we can't contain it. Lord, we live in a dark world. But in the midst of a dark world, you shine the light of Jesus Christ in our hearts and we say thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the joy you give us in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done and we ask that you help us to be your ambassadors this week in a way that brings you glory. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.